If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Robert Brooker. He is the chairman of WEN911, a technology company part of the whole industrial internet with offices in the US and Austin, Texas, in Mexico and Asia and in Europe. He holds an undergraduate degree in economics from Harvard as well as an MBA from the same institution. He is uh, a person with an amazing entrepreneurial past. He is said to have brought the bagel to Eastern Europe and although he denies it, some people say he brought the hookah to the United States. I'm excited to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Robert. It's nice to be here, Byron. So you, you've heard the show enough times to know I, I usually start off by asking, what is artificial intelligence? How, how do you think of it? How do you define it? And, and uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, so, so artificial intelligence is, um, it's semantically ambiguous uh, whether um, it could be that it's artificial in the sense that it's not real intelligence, or it could be intelligence achieved artificially, in other words, without the use of the human brain. Um, I think uh, most, uh, most people in the space regard the, take, adopt the latter uh, because that's really the more useful um, uh, interpretation of artificial intelligence, that it's something that, uh, that is real intelligence and can be useful to the world and to our lives. So sometimes I, I think of that as a difference between the instantiation of something and the simulation of something. In case in point, a computer can simulate a hurricane, but there isn't really a hurricane there. It's not an instantiation of a hurricane. And so I guess the same question is, is it simulating intelligence or is it actually intelligent? Do you think that distinction matters? Um, I think the, when I say artificial, uh, that the former definition, I mean that it seems on the surface to be intelligent, but when you look further down, you determine it's not intelligent. Um, it may be helpful to, um, um, you know, in terms of how I define intelligence, and really I, I like the standard dictionary definition of intelligence, and that is the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills. And um, so um, you could argue that a nematode worm is, is intelligent. You could argue, it's hard to argue that, for example, a mechanical clock is intelligent. And, um, you know, ultimately, um, different people are defining intelligence in different ways. Uh, I think it, it ultimately comes down to, you know, what, what people in the field are doing and they're trying to, they're trying to make it useful and how it's defined is, is almost uh, 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 on the side. But, you know, the, the, the most singular thing about AI and, and the way we do it now is that um, it isn't general. And I don't mean that like even in the science fiction, you know, artificial general intelligence. We have to take one very specific thing and spend a lot of time and energy and effort teaching the computer to do that one thing. And then to teach it to do something else, you largely have to start over. That doesn't seem like intelligence. 
um, at, at some level, it, it feels like a bunch of simulation of solving one particular kind of problem. If, if, if you're using the acquire new skills definition, it, in a way, it's almost like it doesn't, none of it does that right now. It, it's, no matter what, it's limited to what it's been programmed to do. Additional data alters that, but it doesn't itself acquire new skills, does it? I think the skills part is hard. Uh, the, uh, the acquire and apply knowledge is a little bit easier. So in the case of, for example, a nematode worm, uh, let's say, let's, let's take nematode worm, 302 neurons. Um, what it can do is it can detect a smell and then move towards the smell. And if there's food there, it says, aha, there's, there's this smell indicates food. And when I smell it in the future, I'm going to go towards that smell and get the food. But if the world later changes where that smell is no longer associated with food, the nematode worm will start to um, not go towards the smell, learning that, that that smell does no longer indicates food. Maybe some other smell indicates food. Um, so in that, that in my mind indicates that the nematode worm is acquiring knowledge and applying knowledge. The skill part is harder, and I think that's all, that goes the same with AI, that the skill part is very difficult. Um, it's not difficult for a chimpanzee or a human or you know, other, uh, some other animals, but I think it's, very, it's difficult for, uh, for machines to do that. You know, the nematode worm, like you said, has 302 neurons, two of which, by the way, don't appear to be connected to anything. So functionally has 300. Don't you think that that amount of sophisticated behavior, do we even have a model for how 300 neurons, like even if we don't know the mechanics of it, you know, a neuron can fire, and it can fire on an analog basis. It's not binary. Uh, it, that just the interplay of 300 of those can create that complex behavior of finding a mate and moving away from things that poke it and all of the rest. Does it, does it seem odd that that can be achieved so, with so little when it takes us so much more time, hassle, and energy to get a computer to do the simplest, most rudimentary thing? Well, I think it's amazing the the exponentialism of the nematode worm and you know real neural networks uh, is incredible. So for anyone who hasn't spent time at openworm.org, which is the sort of crowdsourced effort to understand the nematode worm, I encourage you to spend at least an hour there. It's fascinating. Um, so you think 302 neurons, um, you know, oh, that's simple. Should be able to figure it out, right? But then. And you can, it's all mapped out. Each neuron connects to, you know, between a couple or maybe a couple dozen other neurons. So you suddenly have 7,000 synapses. And wait, that's not all, because each synapse is different. <laughs> and so figuring out how each synapse works becomes even more complicated. And then there's on top of that, there's uh, the inner workings of a neuron, changes going on within each neuron itself. Uh, and then, and I don't know if this is the case in nematode worm, but certainly in the case of the human brain and probably many other brains, uh, there's communication uh, between and among neurons that takes place not in the synapses, but but uh, you know by exchanging chemicals. So so it's incredible how just 300 neurons can suddenly become who knows how many um, uh, how many sort of bits, or even if we can, uh, we really almost can't even can't even call them bits of information. 
it's more, as you put it, it's, it's really more of an analog concept, which has um, just magnitudes more possibilities. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> I see that. We'll let it out. Well, viewed that way, the nematode worm is sort of an underachiever there. Yes, it's yes. It's not getting a lot done with all that stuff, it seems like. Although they are 70% of all animals on the planet, I think, by one count. So do you, do you have a theory on why... Well, first of all, would you agree that progress in artificial intelligence is moving... Would you th do you think it's moving quickly or slowly? Um, it seems very slow. And it's interesting that, uh, that most of your... Um, you know, I gather from most of your guests, at least from the podcast I listen to, um, predict our artificial general intelligence being hundred years or hundreds of years away. Um, and um, it does seem very slow. And, you know, to your point of early, a moment ago about how um, it's very hard to transfer one thing to the other, you know, we get visited by companies all the time in the industrial space. And industrial space is a really good, is almost really good for artificial intelligence in theory. Because it doesn't, there's really no or very little human language. All the complexities of human language are sort of gone because essentially it's machine and it's and about uh, and it's about in the industrial setting. Um, how can you save a million dollars by uh, by using less energy, or how can you make uh, the defect rate of your product lower? Things. These are all sort of readily quantifiable um, uh, outcomes, and um, and companies come to us that have created some sort of artificial intelligence to uh, sort of revolutionize or sort of make industry much more efficient. And typically what happens is that, you know, they'll come to us and they come to us because, uh, you know, either they're looking for funding or they're looking for customers and we have a lot of customers so they think we can somehow work together. And they come to us and they say, uh, uh, oftentimes, look, we have, we have our first customer, we save them a million dollars a year um, by making their process so much more efficient. And if we can only apply that artificial intelligence to a thousand other companies, you know, that's a billion dollars worth of value. And so therefore, we're going to be great. But you dig into it, and each, um, that one customer, the amount of human services, and this speaks a little bit to the issue about whether artificial intelligence will cause uh, all these people to be out of work, there is so much human interaction in just figuring out one project, all the normalization of the data, and then the AI sort of is not quite figuring things out, and a human intercedes and inserts another type of model by, you know, based on sort of, you know, human mental model. It's almost like, you know, this notion of that when humans and, and machines work together, you get a better outcome than, than machines alone. So, um, so it's very hard. I mean, the Nirvana... Uh, or what people are trying to get at is that kind of one thing, one AI that looks at all the industrial data. And again, you don't have any human language. There's a lot of things that you could call very simple, um, even though there, there are a lot of complexities. And the thing you want is something that will just look at all the data and figure everything out. But, but no, one's, no one's been able to do that. It's always been very specific to the context. And so even in areas that, are, that should be simpler, like industrial, which is more akin to, say, playing chess or playing Go because it's, a, it's a, essentially a game with fixed rules and fixed um, objectives uh, that are easily quantifiable, um, it's, still, it's still very, very difficult. You know, of course, what the Turing test is and yeah. uh, the idea that if, if you can't... If an AI masters language to a degree that you can't tell if you're at a terminal talking to a person or a computer... Alan Turing argued you have to say that machine uh, is thinking. 
even if it's doing it differently. So let's start with you. You're not a big fan of language as being some kind of a benchmark for the ability of AI. Why is that? Um, I think uh, language is very, um, it's, in, it's incredibly complex. It's incredibly imperfect. Um, there are multiple definitions of, uh, of words. Um, the whole notion of language, sometimes, of course, it's, it's used to uh, facilitate communication. Sometimes language is used to block communication or to create uh, or uh, instantiate different, different social classes. Uh, to uh, to communicate things to some people you don't want other people to to know about um, it just seems so complicated and um, and it's hard for me to um, uh, make sense of the saying that the most important thing is language whereas if an AI is able to look at you know a bunch of um, blood tests and um, and MRIs you know, it can cure cancer. Is that somehow, and, and doesn't understand language at all, is that somehow inferior to, you know, having a, a simple conversation? Um, um, one reason that AI has been successful, I believe, in playing games like Go and chess is that there's no, there's no language involved in it. Um, and um, so, uh, so maybe as we uh, think about the best applications for AI, uh, could be useful, and I think it's already being done, to think about, okay, what are some things that can move society, move our, our society forward uh, with AI that don't involve language? Uh, unfortunately, in the case of curing cancer, you know, you have all this medical research that's published in English, and so that, you know, that's a little wrench in that, but, you know, there, there are surely ways that AI can be applied to non-language non related things. I saw a thing just day before yesterday that, that said that all human languages uh, transfer information at the same bit rate fundamentally hmm. that uh, even though they're all very different and you know even come from different proto languages way back they all probably are some inherent limit to what we're able to do or at least what the vast majority of us are able to do because language has to be accessible to everybody not not just a few people. Yeah, it's interesting because you're implying that that it's the it's the listener who has a limitation in terms of processing. You know, I would think, for example, that for example in Chinese where you have all these different um, uh, vowel tones, and that the the combination of um, of consonants or not consonants of syllables in Chinese is actually greater than than English, and so you think that some languages you'd be able to transmit at a higher bit rate than others. Um, so maybe to your point, maybe it's the listener that that's the constraint. I guess, you know, the, the reason that people really want to crack the language thing is what you were just saying earlier. What, what you want to do in the industrial, on the industrial internet is say, look, AI, I just want you to make this part cheaper using less of this and more of this, and, and here's what you can and can't do. And I guess the hope is that if the computer can understand that, uh, that it isn't an arcane uh, ability only able to be interfaced by kind of a priestly class that knows how to code, that, that it becomes an accessible technology to everybody. Yeah, well, I think you bring up a good point that if it's the, uh, I mean, currently you can do it with non-language non saying, you know, figure out some way to, um, uh, to conserve energy, to, to have the same output but use less energy. Um, but if, um, you know, if instead of having a programmer do it, you have some 
uh, less skilled, you know, machine operator, you know, say it in, in English, that would certainly be useful. You mentioned job loss a minute ago, and, and you said that the degree, the, the difficulty in applying AI to new tasks uh, certainly acts as a break on any, you know, instant kind of loss of large amounts of uh, jobs. How far do you take that? Like, do you, are you among the folks that worry that these technologies, that automation really is going to reduce the number of jobs to a point that it becomes a problem for us? Uh, I don't think it'll reduce jobs at all, personally. Um, I can't, uh, um, you know, predict that for sure, of course. But the, you know, this notion of just what I observe that the, you know, let's take this case in the industrial world where you have, you have a team of people that's needed to, um, to figure out how a factory saves a million dollars in energy. So you're employing, you're employing more people um, and you're saving energy. Okay, are you having to lay off a coal miner or uh, an oil rig worker? Yeah, may, maybe one or two or, or, may, or maybe none. It seems like that's sort of a net increase in, um, in employment. Or I'll take another example. Um, let's, say you're a, uh, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you hire salespeople to sell things. And uh, just to just to give some kind of numbers, let's say that uh, it costs seventy thousand dollars salary to hire a salesperson, and you lose money for a year. But then the salesperson um, sells a hundred thousand dollars a year, so you make a little bit of profit. But then you have to wait a year and lose money. You, maybe you're not going to hire too many salespeople. But let's say that there's some sort of tool. Let's say it's an AI tool that's so effective that the salespeople can now sell double what they could otherwise. Well, I would argue you would hire more salespeople. So th this is a case where AI um, actually causes increase in employment, not decrease in employment. Um, so I find it, and then the argument, and I think you've made this uh, argument in the past that you know, there's been so many waves of innovation in, um, you know, throughout uh, history and never has it caused any major dis dislocation of employment. Why would this, why would this time be, be different? Some people argue that it's happening faster. I think what we're seeing is uh, certainly with AI, it's happening. It's happening actually pretty slowly. Um, maybe that'll change going forward. But at this, you know, as it looks now, and and based on the, um, well, I think there's there's an argument can be made that it could happen. Somebody could happen dramatically and very fast. And I think that's an interesting thing to explore. But based on what uh, seems to be the consensus, even among most of your guests, uh, it's going to be a slow. Uh, development, and that will lend itself towards uh, less disruptive uh, to the economy and to employment. Do you worry about the privacy impacts of the technology? And and, and the, the setup for this that I've used before is that you know we all have privacy because there's so many of us, and you can't follow everybody, and you can't eavesdrop on every conversation, you can't read every email of everybody. But with AI, you effectively can. The cameras can read lips. Every email can, you know, be put into a system that's looking for, you know, I mean, you, you know, the setup. Uh, every phone conversation can be uh, voice to text, and then that text can be analyzed using many of the same tools we build to look for patterns and cancer cures and all of that. Mm -hmm. Do you worry about the application of the technology uh, to essentially limit, by governments, to limit uh, privacy? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the um, you know, it's interesting that I find it interesting that our constitution was created um, largely 
um, to combat the perceived or prevent the, what was perceived as tyranny by the British. And those same principles will probably be very good at combating sort of tyranny of AI, let's say, or tyranny of or surveillance. So I think, um, at least in this country, um, our institutions are um, uh, uh, have a system for protecting our, our, our privacy. Um, and then that potentially bodes well. It's interesting also for me to, um, or I feel, to think about you know, why, why is privacy good? You know, on one hand, if you pull most people, let's say most people say that they, they prefer to have a life with privacy than a life without privacy. Okay, that's a, that's a valid by itself. But also I wonder if there is a inherent benefit to society of having um, sort of undetected crimes happening. And let me give you a few examples. So um, the reason for that being that sometimes laws are, are not just and that's only realized later. So let's take, for example, um, um, homosexuality was, was criminalized, I think, in most or all the United States as well as large parts of the world. And um, if in a surveillance economy, if every time someone violated a law, they're hauled off to jail, um, uh, because that, that wasn't the case, there was, there was uh, you know, a constituencies were able to a form that eventually changed the law or take this, take legalization of marijuana. If every, every time someone uh, smoked marijuana, they were hauled off to jail, that would make it very difficult for society to make change. So there's almost a societal benefit to have certain, you know, to have the privacy to commit illegal acts. Um, and um, so uh, I think, um, you know, um, I'm actually feel that we have the tools in this society to set the, um, set the dial of privacy where we want it. Um, there's only one thing that I worry about, and that is the, um, we have, of course, you know, in recent weeks and months and years, we have all these mass shootings going on. And one can imagine that we live in a society or about to live in a society where, where one, you know, single, let's call them deranged or misguided individuals, can cause great havoc. And if they're killing, you know, a dozen people, that's horrible, of course. But if people are making bombs or biological agents, uh, that kill thousands or tens of thousands of people, and if it only happens once, where let's say 10,000 people or 100,000 people are um, are killed, then our society may, by consent, want to give up its privacy in order to prevent that from happening before. And basically, society would say that, well, we want the government to um, surveil everybody, just to find that one guy who's going to, you know, go out there and kill um, 10,000 people. Um, and I think that's a real, very real danger. It'll be interesting um, how that unfolds. We had a guest on the show uh, from Argo Design named Jared, and he said something I thought was very interesting, that the notion of privacy is actually kind of an industrial uh, revolution idea that beforehand, you were born in a village, and you lived in your village, and there were 100, 200, 300 people in the whole village. And everybody knew everything about everybody. And, uh, and so you didn't really have any expectation of privacy. And that by consensus, people agreed not to mention it. Like you ran into somebody and you knew all the bad stuff about them, but you didn't. You would be impolite to mention it. And then we all moved to cities, and there you have anonymity, you have privacy, we get used to it. And he posits that in the future, 
when we have no privacy anymore, we'll go back to that system where you'll know everything about everybody, but you'll be polite enough not to mention it. Right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's basically true. And the you know the when we have urbanization, we have people, people you know someone can mug you and then disappear into the city, and you don't have no idea who that person is. So you know we'll live without privacy. We could live in a safer world. Um, um, you know I think. Um, for example, in China, China's their crime rates are much lower than the U.S. Um, is that a society that you want to live in or not? Um, maybe some people would say yes. I mean, there are plenty of places that um, that have developed technology that can sur surveil all of the citizens and regularly does so and uses it to suppress dissent. And uh, and those tools are becoming packaged and, and sold to oppressive regimes who then can, you know, put essentially install them and, and, and use them to, to silence their opposition. Is there any way out of that for those sorts of societies? Or is that, is this a technology that forever empower, as far as we can see, forever empowers those in power to be able to stifle um, those who oppose them? Yeah, it's very hard to imagine, um, you know, short of emigration, um, it's very hard to uh, imagine a, I mean, how could, uh, for a surveilled society, how could they, people be clever enough to evade the surveillance in order to mount any sort of, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary effort that would be likely to succeed? Um, sometimes, you know, for, I, get, I go back and forth. I get uh, vexed by this issue because... Um, I feel that um, I'm not sure whether, on one hand, sometimes I think, you know, people, um, human nature is to, is to want to be free um, and to not be surveilled and not be, um, uh, you know, essentially ruled. Um, and then on the other hand, this democratic societies is just a very small portion of history. And maybe, maybe that's more natural for, for, for a lot of people. I don't know the answer to this question, but I start to, I thought I knew it, you know, 10 years ago. You know, nowadays, as I start to see some of the things you mentioned and other things going on in society, um, I start to, um, I start to wonder. What about the use of this technology in warfare? Does, does that concern you? And I guess the setup there is, you know, there's probably about a dozen countries that have really big, robust militaries that are, you know, a large part of their uh, national budget goes to. And each one of them doesn't believe they can face a future where they voluntarily don't use artificial intelligence in their weapon systems and the other 11 do. And therefore, you know, the prisoner's dilemma, as it were, is they all yeah. end up doing it. Do you think, A, that that is the case, and B, does it matter, or is, or is this technology not really a game changer? You saw Putin's quote, of course, that said, whoever controls the technology will rule the world. Artificial intelligence will rule the world. Yeah. Um, well, I think yeah, you, you really have no choice but to... Well, I think it's unwise not to to just say we're going to opt out of the arms race and let everyone else. I think that's a uh, uh, self-destructive. Um, I think it's so hard to know the outcome. You know, on one hand, um, you know, um, so let's let's take an example where let's say you could have lethal drones the size of mosquitoes 
So someone, some government wages war on you, and all you have to do is send these mosquitoes, and they can, by the, you know, identify the leaders, the top ten leaders, kill all top ten leaders, and then and then you're good. You don't have to kill, you know, hundred thousand soldiers in order to in order to win the war. Well, that's that's a great that's a great thing. Um, you know, on the other hand, um, well, what are the second order effects of that? So. Will people, and at first I thought actually about that, I thought that's interesting because usually the leaders are at, who wage war are at least risk because they're kind of behind the lines or they're in the walls of the Pentagon or wherever they are. But if the people initiating wars are actually personally at the most risk, does that change the calculus of war and actually make us a safer world? But then I think about the second order effects. Well, if that happens, then will, um, will people, will the tendency be to wage war and in a way where, where you don't identify yourself, where someone gets attacked and you have no idea who's attacking you, which actually sounds you know, frighteningly similar. You get all these hacks and so forth. A lot of times you don't know who it is. Or the, pers- or the entity waging the war disguises themselves as some other entity. So the counterattacks is on the entity that didn't start it. And so I think we have no idea what the consequences of it, of it are. Um, and... Um, and one can hope also that the AI is not only an offensive technology but a defensive technology. But what the, uh, inter- you know, what is that enough or not to, uh, to to make a safe world? I don't know. You know, there are in a way old issues. You you just talked about um, battles of champions to determine instead of the whole army, you just have a, a champion from each side, David and Goliath or what have you. You've got false flag. Um, campaigns where you stage an attack pretending to be somebody else and uh, instigate warfare. So, I mean, I guess they're all... It's interesting, though. Do you Would you posit that warfare in the future isn't actually going to be profitable? And you have to, at some point, say, what do you gain at that point? You know, you, gone are the days you invade the country and haul off all the cattle and all the gold and, and all of that. Is there profit in armed conflict between nations. Is it going to be something that we invest heavily in? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a valid point that, the, that there's a, um, what's the adage that sort of no two countries that have both had a McDonald's have waged war with each other, that if the, to the extent that co- countries are in uh, part of the global economy, there's a big distance. There's no. There's no. Pro, there's no upside to uh, to waging war. Um, one possible exception could be that the there's no upside for a society to wage war because of the economic consequences. But the it seems like some leaders benefit personally that helps them to stay in power to wage war. Um, on the notion that you know we're you know sort of uh, swelling of national pride and, and and things like that, so that's that's one exception to that. But I think generally speaking, that that uh, that you're right that the um, there's no um, uh, there's no economic upside to war. Uh, certainly, um, certainly in in uh, a period of a few you know over. In, possibly in some sort of long-term scenario, but certainly over a period of decades, there doesn't seem to be any incentive for it. Do you hold out hope that artificial intelligence is going to solve major problems of humanity, that it'll prolong our lives and cure, um, cure aging, 
and uh, help us find plentiful energy and how, I mean, all of these things that we, that are beyond our intellect so far. Yeah. Do you, are you optimistic that on net? I, I, am, I am optimistic that we'll, we'll figure out things, whether it'll be 10 years from now or 100 years or 200 years from now. Um, I mean, that uh, it's consistent with everything we've achieved, the humanity's achieved so far. Why wouldn't it continue? So, you know, the, the traditional worries about the technology um, also include, you know, that we don't really have a framework for accountability of when, when, the, when the artificial intelligence does something, like uh, the self-driving car runs somebody over. In the end, who's responsible for that? Like, we don't have a framework for really understanding understand that, that I believe Mercedes has gone on the record saying that you know they by policy pr protect the driver of the car yeah. uh, over any other concerns that's what and, and is that a decision that I mean do you can you foresee a future that coders are subpoenaed and source code is analyzed for liability and that like is it possible that lawyering gums up all of this stuff to a point that we can't kind of get through it. Um, well, putting aside the notion that AI could actually help make the legal system much more efficient, and uh, the um, I think that's one of the big obstacles we face as a society. So, uh, you know, one example that's bandied about all about is that if self-driving cars, I mean, you alluded to it, self-driving cars reduce uh, fatalities by 99%, you know, that does that 1% um, uh, is who's who's liable for that one percent, uh, and and how do we how do we deal with it? And um, um, it seems like the uh, you know one possible way is that a law is passed that just basically gives sort of you know amnesty or you know um, to uh, or or a release of liability you know by you know legislated um, could be one way to handle it. But uh, this is an interesting. It would be it would seem sad to me to. Um, uh, to miss out on that opportunity to significantly improve our lives. Yeah, it's interesting that you know one self-driving car kills somebody in its front page news, and yet a thousand other ones, you know, with people that day also were in accidents, and that that doesn't. It's it it seems very. But you know, um, the new technology needs to be held to a higher standard. It needs to be you know ten times better, stronger, cheaper, something like that. I think. So one. You know, in my in my book, the the fourth age, I uh, I really spend a lot of time trying to decide if machines can be conscious. And again, the setup is that computers right now can measure temperature, but people can feel warmth. Mm. And there's some qualitative difference between those two things. We don't think the computer feels warmth, um, and we call that difference. We call that consciousness. It has it can experience things and not just merely sense them. You, um, you were an editor in an early version of the book, and I'm curious where you came down on that. Do you believe that machines can become conscious? Or, you know, the, the question I always ask, you believe people are machines and therefore machines already are conscious? We are. Right, yeah, so um, it's an interesting question. 
Um, I personally, well, I don't know, but here, here's my, here's how, here's how I think about it. And that is that the, I personally, I suspect that words like consciousness and, um, feelings are placeholder words. They're not really, um, they're, they're things that people have made up to describe their, that, that don't, um, I mean, how do we know that the feeling of pain is anything more than the firing of a bunch of neurons in the pain center of the brain? Um, and so, um, and if it's, if that's true, that that's all it is, and that pain is, is just the firing of certain neurons in the brain, then the brain is a machine and is no different from a machine. Um, and it's very hard to know because if we, um, you know, things that, um, you know, these things that we don't quite understand what it is, a lot of times we understand them because we can't explain them and we develop some theory for it. But the problem is if, if we had, if we understood everything about the brain and about the neurons of the brain and all the physical phenomena of the brain, and there was something that was going on that could not be explained by the neurons of the brain, then we'd say, aha, you know, here's something, this is what consciousness does, and, and, and we can figure out what it is. It's maybe a little bit analogous to, um, to quantum mechanics. So you have, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, is, is light, is it a particle or is it a wave? Um, you know, some experiments suggest one, suggest the other, then someone comes up with a theory that, uh, hey, it's, uh, it's actually both. Um, it becomes substantiated. And then, you know, now, now, these days, we can actually make machines that, 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 um, that are, are quantum machines. And if indeed consciousness is something separate from just the neurons of the brain, and we discover that, and we figure out what, um, and the same thing goes with this concept of the soul, you know, we figure out what it is exactly. Maybe it's some, some other force of, of, of nature, like the nuclear force, or electromagnetic force, or the force of gravity. Um, but, um, but how do we ever know when we don't even understand the brain? You, you said they're placeholder words, things like consciousness and feelings. What do you mean by that? They don't exist and so we make up a word or they're, they're words we have stuck in in place of an explanation or what? Uh, I think uh, essentially both. So my, uh, so an analogy is that, um, You know, there was a, before the theory of special relativity, um, there was all this consternation about, uh, well, if, this, if light travels at a certain speed, what's it, and, and heavenly bodies are moving relative to each other at different speeds, what's the, uh, you know, what's the, what's light moving relative towards? And they came up with this concept of ether, that the whole uh, universe is full of ether, and this is what uh, this is what light moves relative to. And then when it was determined that that's not really true, the, the the notion of ether just just went away. So I feel like consciousness and feeling is sort of a, um, a placeholder word, or it's a way that we that we use to describe um, uh, brain activity um, that's that's useful for us. You know, I feel pain, therefore I'm going to walk away from the fire. It's it's a useful it's a useful expression, um, but that it's not a, um, uh, and I don't think we know for sure, but it's very possible that it's nothing, it's nothing more elevated than, you know, just 
certain mechanical that's activity a, in the head. A sad and sterile way to live your life, though, because you have to then say that that's true about love. Yes, I think you'd have to. But I mean, you could find joys in other ways. But yes, I mean, I think if it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a possible or just accept it that, hey, the brain's an amazing. Actually, it may even cause you to consecrate the brain to a higher level than than uh, uh, maybe it, maybe it's good news. Maybe you're not giving the brain enough respect. You know, I in, in the book, I, I try to wrap uh, the same issue up uh, with the discussion of, or I try to get at it through a discussion of free will, that either all, everything in the universe is, you know, cause and effect, uh, and you stubbing your toe is a traceable event back to the Big Bang, or... It's quantum, it's just random, it just happens and for no reason. But we sure have some sense that we are making choices, that we aren't just neither random nor inevitable, that, that you choose something. Do you think that that's an illusion, that our brain just tells us to make us happy, or do you think you have free will? Yeah, I think the... I think it was Somerset Mom who said we have free will, or at least we have the illusion of free will. Um, the um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, what's wrong with free will being the result of a lot of neuronal firing in the brain that leads us to some sort of decision? What's what's wrong with that? I mean, that that's that's free will. Um, and maybe there's some random elements to it. I mean, sometimes when, you know, maybe we have a dilemma and there's no clear answer, but it's better to make one, a decision than not making any decision. And so you just flip a coin, or your brain flips a coin. You there's know, wrong with that, I don't think. Ian McKellen, there's a meme that I see on Reddit, and it's got Sir Ian. And um, I don't even know where it came from originally, but he's looking at a card. And the setup is always... You say blank, but the fact that you blank implies exactly the opposite. You know, you say you like dogs, but the fact that you ate a dog for lunch. I mean, that's not one, obviously, but that's the, the setup. And for so many people who have that kind of worldview that, that, that these things are all just mechanistic and it's just complexity of the brain and... And, uh, you know, feelings are just, you know, pain is just neurons firing. And, and they had this kind of sterile way of looking at everything. But then they act completely different on a day-to-day -day basis. They act like uh, life is full of choices and passion and, yeah. and excitement. And, and, and it's such a big disconnect. Like if, if you have no real choice... And, and the people you love, you don't really love them. It's just a series of chemicals that are released and neurons firing and endorphins, and you don't really love them. And all of the rest, we sh if, we, if we even know that, we sure don't act that way. Even people who believe that don't act. Like even Mr. Spock liked people and had friends right. and all of that. Right. So um, how do you do that? Do you think you can't? actually live, if, if you think all of that's true, people are machines, everything else is, if you think that you actually can't live your life that way, you just go crazy. Um, or, or what? 
Because I always I assume yeah. that if there's that disconnect, then people say they believe one thing, but you look at their actions and it reveals they really believe something else. Right. I, I don't think the two are just, I don't think there's a disconnect. I don't think there's <coughs> consistency. I think the the brain is such a, and I'm not saying that it's impossible that there aren't non-brain, there's not a consciousness or a spirit or a soul. I'm just saying that it's impossible to know whether it's just the brain or it's something else. Um, and if it's just the brain, then let the brain be, and then the brain's a glorious thing and we should celebrate it. And if the if, if brain is part of, or the enabler of, of love and, and everything else wonderful about life, um, that in my mind is no less reason to celebrate it. Do you think this singularian view that you'll be able to upload your your you know if you knew the position of every neuron and all of this mm -hmm. that you would be able to upload quote yourself into a machine or uh, elon musk's thing where you can actually connect your brain and interface directly with the machine do you think those things are a possible and b good um Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, it does. It does offer. Um, it does offer immortality. Um, but immortality can be eternity in heaven or eternity right. in hell. <laughs> that could be a bad thing. That could be a bad thing. Um, you know. It also. Um, I feel that the one thing I also wrestle with is how much of intelligence or is intelligence human intelligence or any intelligence driven by having a purpose so for example um let's say a human has a purpose to well to survive to propagate its genes either through reproduction or through supporting other people who have this share genes with you your family members and so forth um and um and maybe there, there are other purposes to, uh, to us as humans, but does having a purpose, is that important for... Because otherwise, why have intelligence if there's not some, some purpose for it? And does that have... Uh, so I, I wonder whether if you're uploaded to, uh, to a machine and you essentially become immortal, does that, then what is your purpose? Well, Does that take away some of your purpose? And is yeah. that a problem? Or I maybe mean, it's not a problem. I don't know. Some people would say there's plenty of non-intelligent life that does very well. Grass. All right. Like it, grass seems to, to grow and get sunlight and it and it has no purpose and it has no intelligence, but it still lives. And then there are things that sometimes just tag along with life. Like why is blood red? I mean it just is because the redness came along with something else, and it could just be intelligence came along with something else that, uh, I mean, I don't think any of that. I think we use so much of our brains, 20% um, of all of our calories go to power our intellect, and that's such an overhead. I read recently that for babies, it's like 80%. You know, they have a little stubby arms, you know, they're not powering their bodies with hardly anything, and, and you that's just don't think that it would be uh, that expensive from a caloric standpoint and not and survive without serving a purpose. Um, 
Where do you think, in, so with your definition of the nematode worm, you, um, uh, with your in, definition of intelligence, you extend it down to the nematode worm. You say that if you behave intelligently, you are intelligent. Yes. And, uh, but taking a higher bar of something that, because uh, it could very easily be, um, well, I guess by that standard, all kinds of other things, even non-animals are intelligent. Trees or, or vines that like go up looking for sunlight and... Uh, it, it could be. I don't know if more of the behavior of trees, but I think under this definition, the tree would have to be able to learn and learn new oh, things. I see. So the environment changes, and the tree has to, um, or the or the, the the rules of of life change, or the rules of the environment change, and the tree has to somehow learn from that and adjust its behavior. It could be that the tree is intelligent under that definition. But I just have to understand. I'm just curious if all of a sudden a tree lived in a place and uh, for some reason it stopped uh, getting nearly as much rain there for mm -hmm. some reason for over a long hundred years. And you know the trees successively become smaller or their leaves get bigger or their root system gets more efficient. Most people would say that that's natural selection. The ones that could already do it very well right. survived and the ones that couldn't get live on less water didn't. Is that intelligence? Well, that's it. So if you're, if you're saying that there are a thousand trees, right. And uh, then that's a different thing. If you're saying that there's one tree and that tree figured out how to develop bigger leaves and to capture water on its own, then I would say that tree is intelligent. So I'll ask you my final question here, which is, uh, you know, we talked about some dark things and we talked about some uh, positive things. Um, you know, are, are you in the end an optimist? Or are you like, I don't know what's the if the future is going to be better or worse or not. I have no idea. Uh, I'm an optimist. Uh, I don't know how much of it is true belief versus that uh, it's just, um, it's, it's more, more satisfying to be an optimist in life than a pessimist. Um, so it's hard for me to tease those out from each other. But, it, but essentially, I'm, I, you know, I feel that throughout all of human history, we've gotten, we've, we've become better. Humans have become better. Societies have become better. Yes, there have been a lot of zigzags. There's still a lot of injustice, and I don't see any reason why that would cease to continue to happen, even with something like artificial intelligence. All right. Well, it has been a fascinating near hour, and I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Byron. If you enjoy this Voices in AI podcast, consider subscribing to the new Deep Dive into AI monthly report authored by Byron Reese. Each report offers exhaustive analysis of a key issue in AI. This is designed to guide and inform enterprise decision makers interested in, planning for, or already investing in AI. Visit gigaohm.com slash deep dive to try it for free.